Hello and welcome to Prehistory, the archaeology of the ancient Near East. My name is Jane and today I want to tell you about life in the Upper Paleolithic. Last week we looked at the transition from the Middle to the Upper Paleolithic. We saw how improvements in the ability of archaeologists to determine the age of sites has shown that this was actually a very long process, with at least 10,000 years where humans and Neanderthals were both living in the Near East. We saw how stone tool technology changed over this long period, with both what looks like a rapid shift from stone tools based on flakes to stone tools based on blades, but with an overlap in these two methods visible in the earliest periods of the Upper Paleolithic. We saw how the way that we understand this period of our prehistory has changed as a result of these new discoveries, with a greater awareness of the impact that our coexistence with Neanderthals, in whatever form that that took, had on our investment in technology and the improvement of technology during the course of the initial part of the Upper Paleolithic. This week, we have left the time of the Neanderthals behind and move into looking at what life was like in the human-only world of the Near East during the Upper Paleolithic, from about 40,000 years ago onwards. Now that we stood alone as the only people species in the area, what were we modern humans like? As with the earlier times that we've talked about, we modern humans in the Upper Paleolithic of the Near East were hunter-gatherers. We moved around the landscape, sometimes sleeping out in the open, and sometimes sleeping in one of a series of cave site base camps. In this most basic way, we were still a lot like the anatomically modern humans who lived in the Levant and Arabia during the Middle Paleolithic. A few things have changed since then, though. For a start, we are, as I said last week, now making our stone tools based on blades. The way that these tools were made also seems to have changed. In the Middle Paleolithic, stone tools were chipped using what is called hard hammer percussion. This means hitting the parent rock, the core, with another rock, a hammerstone, in order to chip off pieces. In the Upper Paleolithic, we see a lot more use of what is called soft hammer percussion. Hitting the core with a hammerstone has not gone away, but the way that the tools were made also indicates that a softer hammer was used, probably made out of bone or deer antler. This means that toolmakers were able to take off much more delicate little pieces during the manufacturing process. We don't know exactly when this idea of using a bone antler as a hammer came about. It seems probably to predate the Upper Paleolithic, but it does become a more regular part of the process here, even if it's not a completely new invention. We are still making chipstone points, although there are some differences in the points that we see in the Upper Paleolithic, such as extra work being taken to carefully thin the points, especially along the base. This has led to a lot of arguments about exactly how points were used here in the Upper Paleolithic. The more conservative of these arguments is that these spears were designed to be thrown for longer distances, either by hand or using a spear thrower. A spear thrower, also called an atlatl, is a carved stick with an angled point that fits into the socket at the base of a spear shaft. If you put the end of the spear onto this point and hold the atlatl by the other end, when you throw the spear, the atlatl acts like an extension of your arm, meaning that you can throw a spear a lot farther and with a lot more force. These things are pretty impressive, especially if you remember that they're basically just a slightly modified forked stick, which essentially doubles the distance and force of a thrown spear. I'll put a video up on the website of an atlatl and spear in action so that you can see what I mean. If you are going for a long and powerful throw with a spear, then you want everything to be both light and well-balanced, so making the spear points smaller and thinner would be part of this. 
The difficulty is that an atlatl, like the spear shafts, would have been made of wood, so any upper Paleolithic atlatls at sites that we look at in the Near East would have decayed back into dirt a long time ago. We know that these did exist in the Upper Paleolithic of Europe at about the same time, and the humans who made up the Upper Paleolithic of Europe got there from the Near East. Here, we do have some finds of atlatls that are made out of bone, which means that they've survived for us to find. And so it's not much of a stretch to see these hunting improvements as also present in the Near East in our Upper Paleolithic. The more controversial argument as to what these points may have been used for is that these indicate the invention of the bow and arrow here in the Upper Paleolithic. Now, using a spear with a spear thrower is already a three-part weapon. Adding a stone point to a wooden spear is a complicated sort of invention, but it's nowhere near as big of a technological leap as adding a synthetic extension to your own arm, which is basically what the athletal is. A bow and arrow is another level above this in terms of weapons technology. The arrow can just be thought of as a miniature version of a spear, so that part is not actually all that complicated. The delivery system, though, the bow, is where the leap forward in technology would have been. An atlatl makes your arm longer. Working out how to do this is an impressive invention, but moving from this idea to using a bow literally involves reinventing how to throw a weapon. Rather than relying on the strength and motion of your arm, you're taking a stick and compressing it in order to use the pent-up energy from this compression in order to propel your tiny spear. Personally, I like to think that someone bent over a sapling tree and then accidentally got hit on the head by this tree when it was released and they had the idea knocked into them. There are many ways that someone, or multiple people in different places, may have figured out the invention of a bow. Regardless of how it happened, though, it was a leap forward again in hunting technology, because while a spear thrown with an atlatl can outstrip a spear thrown by hand, an arrow shot out of a bow can beat both of these. And it means that you can essentially carry a couple of dozen miniature spears with you whenever you go hunting, so that if you miss on the first try, you have another shot. This was not necessarily the case with spears. We know that the bow and arrow was invented at some point. The question is when. Just like with spear shafts and athletals, bows would not have survived for us to find in excavation. So we're left with the stone points and a lot of arguments. From looking at the points, we know that they were smaller and lighter than the middle polylithic ones, and we know that they were hafted. Beyond that, it's really down to a lot of comparisons of the measurements and proportions of the points and arguments back and forth between the archaeologists. There are some other types of stone tools, which make us think that the bow and arrow may very well have been invented during the Upper Paleolithic. Now, when we think of something like a spear point, the first thing that I should point out is that the way that we think of them is usually wrong. If you look at cartoons showing Stone Age people with spears, the points are noticeably big. If one of those spears was around in real life, the point would be about the length and breadth of your hand, if not a little bigger. Have a look at your hand. Uh, if you're driving, maybe keep driving now and do this later. If you hold your palm out with all of the fingers tight together and look at the length and the breadth of your hand, imagine how much this would weigh if it was made out of stone. It's going to be heavy. On a spear that's about as long as you are tall and which has a shaft thin enough for you to be able to grip it easily, it's going to be way too heavy to throw straight. The spearhead would just pull the whole spear down. Even if you could throw the spear hard enough to make it fly straighter, that's a lot more effort than you need to put in. 
Stone spear points are a lot smaller than we tend to think of, more like the length of one finger, or less, rather than the length of our whole hand. If we think of arrowheads, we usually think of something shorter than one of our pinky fingers. That size of a point would make a good spearhead, too. They don't need to be big, they just need to be sharp and pointy. Then we come to microliths. These are tiny little blades, sometimes straight and sometimes with one edge chipped away to make them slightly D-shaped. And I do mean that these are tiny. They're about two centimeters or a little under an inch long. They're not pointy, so why am I talking about them alongside spear points and arrowheads? Well, these little bits of chipped stone could be used to make something called a composite point. We find these microliths all over on upper Paleolithic sites in the Near East, and they become much more common in the stone tools that we find on sites after the Upper Paleolithic. One site from the Levant, from the later part of the Upper Paleolithic, has provided a bit of a clue as to how these tiny tools may have been used. Ohalo II is a site from about 23,000 years ago, meaning it comes from the later stages of the Upper Paleolithic, and it once sat on the shores of Lake Kinneret, which is also called the Sea of Galilee, in the southern Levant. What makes Ohalo II so interesting is that it's no longer sitting on the shore of Lake Kinneret. It's now submerged under the lake. This means that the preservation at the site is really good, as the archaeological material has been buried underwater for thousands of years. This also means that some of the microliths found at Ohalo II still have the adhesive residue stuck on their sides. When the site was excavated, the archaeologists noticed this odd stuff stuck to parts of some of the microliths, and fortunately they didn't just scrub harder when cleaning their tools. As an aside note, the lovely clean artifacts that you see in pictures and in museums don't look like that when they come out of the ground. Everything is covered in dirt, and when we excavate a site, part of every day is spent cleaning the things that we dug up so that we can study them properly. We used to scrub all of the stone tools clean, but these days there are ways of looking at the surface of the stone under a high-powered microscope to look at the tiny scratches that were left when the tool was used. If you scrub a stone tool with a brush, then that destroys all of these tiny scratches, so we don't tend to scrub them anymore. This does mean that we can't be particularly certain that microliths and other stone tools from sites that were excavated a while ago might not have also had preserved adhesive or other things stuck on them. Which is sad, but what can you do? Anyway, the archaeologists excavating a hollow two noticed this stuff stuck on the edges of some of the microliths, and they decided to investigate. They looked at where on the tools this adhesive showed up. Then they looked at all of the microliths from Ohalo II and recorded where they were damaged and broken, as well as looking at the size and the shape of all the microliths. The best explanation for these little stone tools, their size and shape, their damage, and their glue remains, is that they were used as parts of composite points. Now, none of these little pieces really look like projectile points. But if you take a wood or a bone tip and you carve a channel along either side of it and you put these little pieces into the sides, a bit like putting a razor blade on a razor, then you get a sharp point of stone made out of tiny and very lightweight pieces of stone rather than one single point. We do also have tiny microlith points as well. But the fact that we keep finding these little microlith bladelet pieces and the evidence of the patterns of their breakage and the finds of adhesive all come together to suggest that these microliths, at least some of them, were arrowheads. So in addition to the atlatl, it looks like the bow and arrow might have been invented at some point in the Upper Paleolithic, and probably fairly early in the Upper Paleolithic, 
as we find these microliths from sites from the earliest parts of the Upper Paleolithic, and even sometimes from the initial or transitional Middle to Upper Paleolithic phases of some sites. Apart from us humans revamping our technology with new and fancy blade production, we also improved our technology for making our hunting weapons. In addition to this, we also expanded into another area of technology with improvements to bone tools. Now, Neanderthals made bone tools as well, although bone was not a particularly common choice of material for them when they made tools. And when it was used, the bones were usually not modified all that much. When we have modifications, these seem to have primarily been in the form of chipping off bits of stone in order to make the desired shape, much in the same way that the stone tools were made. In the Upper Paleolithic, we get bone tools that have been clearly modified and have been shaped and smoothed and are often completely unrecognizable as to what animal or what bone they originally came from. These shaped bone tools were used to make a lot of things, including an extensive range of points. We have some long and symmetrical bone points, which look suspiciously like bone projectile points. We have bone points which seem to have been used for scraping out and carving other materials, like wood. We also have long and thin bone awls, an old-fashioned sort of tool that would have been used to poke holes in things, such as to poke holes in an animal hide to help push a thin strip of leather through the hole. Think of these like a slightly earlier and a much more solid version of a sewing needle. Of course, now that I've mentioned needles, I should probably point out that we also have bone needles. Carefully carved, smoothed, long and thin bone points, which even have a little eye carved out of the end. These were, of course, a bit bigger than a modern metal sewing needle, but we're still talking about a point that's about three millimeters or a tenth of an inch wide. So they were small enough to have been able to work pretty much like modern sewing needles, and they must have been unbelievably fiddly to make. These are definitely an invention of the Upper Paleolithic, and they start turning up on sites from a little over 30,000 years ago. The bone awls are much older, and they're present from the earliest parts of the Upper Paleolithic. The awls don't stop turning up just because needles get invented, and they may have either had different functions, or you may have maybe used the awl first to puncture your leather, and then use the needle to pull some vegetable fiber or animal sinew string through the hole. These bone tools, specifically the awls and the needles, tell us something else about ourselves in the Upper Paleolithic. You may remember from a couple of weeks ago when we talked about anatomically modern humans in the Middle Paleolithic and how we're not really sure if they wore clothes or if they were just living their lives outside in the altogether. Well, finding the sewing tools in the Upper Paleolithic means that we can be pretty sure that we modern humans here in the Upper Paleolithic were wearing clothes. More than that, these awls and needles mean that we now have the technology to make tailored clothing. So we can actually start to think about ourselves going about in a nice tailored leather suit and fur coats. These changes in technology might help to explain why, here in the Upper Paleolithic, we humans do not restrict ourselves to the warmer and comparatively flatter areas in the Levant. But we start living all over the Near East, including up in the mountains where we really would have needed warm clothing and good warm shoes in order to live. So it's maybe not too much of a surprise that these bone tools are showing up at the same time that we are showing up in a wider range of parts of the Near East. For us, this was pushing forward into the frozen north, which we also did when we wandered into Europe and into Northern Asia, but I suppose from the point of view of us modern humans, 
the warm African species that we are, even the more northern parts of the Near East, was the frozen north. Us moving into even the northern parts of Mesopotamia, let alone moving up into the Zagros, the Tauros, and the Caucasus Mountains, this must have been something of an adjustment. I mean, we would have had our first encounters with cold weather and snow. Clothes, coats, and shoes would have been not only a lot more comfortable, but probably downright necessary in order for us to make it any farther north than what is now the northern parts of modern Syria and the southeastern part of modern Turkey. It's not just changes in bone and stone tool technology that defines the Upper Paleolithic. Actually, we can't really talk about only one Upper Paleolithic. There are a lot of things that humans in all parts of the Near East have in common, like the blade technology, new hunting equipment, nice bone tools, and advances in tailoring. But there are also a lot of things that make each region a bit distinctive. When we were looking at the Lower Paleolithic, we saw that there were some time periods where we could see different practices and different ways of making tools between the coastal areas of the Levant and the more inland parts of the Near East. In the Middle Paleolithic, we also had some little differences between the ways that stone tools were made in the more eastern and inland areas, such as the Zagros Mountains, and in the more coastal areas like the Levant. So it's perhaps not that much of a surprise that in the Upper Paleolithic, we can also see some differences in the way that bone and stone tools were made between the inland areas like the Zagros Mountains and sites of the Levantine coast. Here in the Upper Paleolithic, though, we have enough sites that we can see way more divisions than just separating these two general areas. We can think of the Upper Paleolithic in the Near East as dividing into the three-part or trilogy format that we as archaeologists are so fond of using to divide up the past. We have the initial or transitional phase of the Upper Paleolithic, like we talked about last week, and then we have the early and the later parts of the Upper Paleolithic itself. Within each of these earlier and later parts, we see differences in the types of stone tools and other items between groups of sites in different parts of the Near East. As with before, we have a main division between sites located along the Levantine coastal part of the Near East and sites in the more mountainous inland areas of the Zagros and the Caucasus. What is different now in the Upper Paleolithic, in contrast with earlier periods, is that we have enough sites that we can actually see differences within each of these coastal and inland groups, both in the earlier as well as in the later parts of the Upper Paleolithic. In the initial part of the Upper Paleolithic, we actually can already see differences between sites of the Levant, with sites in the northern and central Levant having similar types of stone tools to the initial Upper Paleolithic levels of the site of Kassarakil in modern-day Lebanon. We also have a group of sites a little farther inland, around some oases in Syria, near El Qom, the Middle Paleolithic site which had the preserved bitumen adhesive on its spear points. And these sites are also initial or transitional Upper Paleolithic, and they have their own subgroup in terms of the shape of the stone tools and the way that they're made. We also have a more widespread group of sites across the Levant, from the Negev up into Lebanon, although a bit more common in the southern Levant, where these sites were found on the coast all the way out into Jordan, and which have another slightly different type of stone tools called the Emirin. As we get out of this transitional phase and into the early Upper Paleolithic of the Levant, we have what's called the Amarian Complex from about 41 or 40,000 years ago, with a distinctive set of narrow points and its own slightly different way of making blades. The Amarian seems to stretch all the way up the Levantine coast, like the Emirian did before, 
and is generally considered to have grown out of the initial or transitional upper Paleolithic groups from along the Levant. And we see early Amarian sites pretty much across the Levant until about 27,000 years ago, when it becomes a bit more regionally diverse and goes into the late Amarian, which lasts for another couple thousand years, until about 25,000 years ago. However, things rapidly get more complicated. Still early on in the Upper Paleolithic, we start to see other sites also in the Levant, which are not Amarian. These sites are from what we call the Levantine Aurignacian, as they have a greater use of flakes and much less use of blades for making tools, and therefore considered to be similar to a tool complex of the European Upper Paleolithic, which is called the Aurignacian. The first thought in the early days of Paleolithic archaeology in the Near East was that the Aurignacian was actually the tool technology that came along with the first humans to move out of Africa and move into the Near East, and that this was carried along with the other humans on their way through the Near East and into Europe. This was a very clear and tidy way of understanding our past, so it's no surprise that it's turned out to be completely wrong. We know from last week that humans were in the Near East 55,000 years ago, and that we have initial Upper Paleolithic sites from about 50,000 years ago. The Levantine Aurignacian sites that we found do not date any farther back than 34 or possibly 36,000 years ago, and they also last in the Levant until about 27 or 26,000 years ago. In other words, these people using these two quite different stone and bone tool technologies were around in more or less the same area for about 10,000 years. Doesn't that sound familiar? Well, maybe and maybe not. When we find Amarian and Levantine Aurignacian at the same sites, the Amarian is always found underneath the Aurignacian and never the other way around, which means that it's older than the Aurignacian. Also, while both of these are found across the Levant, the Amarian sites are much more common in the southern part of the Levant, mostly south of the Dead Sea whereas the Aurignacian sites are not really found south of the Dead Sea, and they are much more common further north of this, and they're also really only found close to the coast. The current thinking is that the Levantine Aurignacian is the spread of a bone and stone tool technology which developed outside of the Levant, probably in Europe or somewhere in between, and which spread back into the Levant along the coast. So we can think of these two different groups living in the Levant at the same time for about 10,000 years, but maybe thinking of them as neighbors rather than as groups of people overlapping across the same valleys. In the later part of the Upper Paleolithic, we stop seeing these Levantine Aurignacian and these early Amarian sites, and instead, from about 27,000 years ago, we see what used to be generally termed the Late Amarian. This Late Amarian actually varies a lot by region within the Levant, so archaeologists are currently arguing back and forth as to whether to keep using this name or to start only using the names for the individual regional differences. Of course, not all of these individual differences have official names yet, such as the unnamed flake-based industries in the Negev and Sinai, and also another unnamed flake-based industry in Syria around El Qom. In between, we do get some official names, like the Athletian in the southern Levant and the north of the Negev, and spreading all the way up into the central Levant. As these arguments go back and forth, at the moment we can just make a note of the names and think of the Levant in the Upper Paleolithic as home to different groups of people in different parts, who we identify because they had slightly different ways of making bone and stone tools. 
Some of these differences were pretty big, like the early Amarian and the Levantine Aurignacian. And some of these differences were much more subtle, like the differences between the Emirin and the Elkom in the initial part of the Upper Paleolithic. Away from the Levantine coast, we have sites in different regions that also show their own local character. Although these regional variations in making tools do not always get their own names either. Generally, these regions are more similar to one another than they are to any of the Levantine sites. Now, we know that humans arrived in the Levant about 55,000 years ago, and we can clearly see them in the different stone tool technologies by about 50,000 years ago. We haven't found evidence of Neanderthals in the Levant from anything after about 45,000 years ago. Outside of the Levant, though, the initial or transitional part of the Upper Paleolithic is probably a little bit shorter. Unfortunately, the exact timing is not yet quite as well figured out, as the site with the best represented end of Middle Paleolithic and beginning of transitional phase, the site of Forwasi, doesn't actually have any dates. Where we do have dates, it looks like the transitional stage was happening actually about 47 to 45,000 years ago. And the Upper Paleolithic proper started in the Zagros about 42 or 40,000 years ago, depending on where you are. In the Caucasus, we don't have any information about the transitional part of the Upper Paleolithic, but we do start seeing Upper Paleolithic sites from about 40,000 years ago. In the Zagros Mountains, we have a stone and bone tool technology that's called the Bardostian, or also called the Zagros Aurignacian. This was defined based on Upper Paleolithic material found at Shanidar, our famous Neanderthal Cemetery cave site from northern Iraq that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. While Shanidar is not the earliest Bardostian site that we have found, we know from other sites of the Zagros regions that the Bardostian starts about 40,000 years ago and lasts until about 20,000 years ago. You may have noticed that this particular Zagros Aurignacian is older than the Levantine one. And actually, some of the sites that used to be classified in this group are the same age or a little bit older than the earliest Aurignacian sites in Europe. Unfortunately, it also really isn't all that helpful as a name as the Zagros region sites also have a large blade-based stone tool industry, but also with a lot of stone tools made out of flakes. So it's not necessarily actually particularly closely related to the European Aurignacian, or even to the Levantine Aurignacian. There is also a lot of variation in the tools between different parts of the Zagros. This was known from pretty early on, although all of these sites for a while were still called Bardostian, or more generally called Zagros Aurignacian. More recently, as we start to get more and more sites, people are starting to have a better look at the regional distribution of the way that the stone and bone tools were made, and the individual regional variations are being identified, and some of them have even been given names, such as the Rostemian in the southern part of the Zagros in what's now Iran. We also get a different regional type of tool technology in the Caucasus, similar to the Zagros Aurignacian, or at least more similar to that than to the stone tools of the Levant, but which hasn't yet been given an official name. This more specific identification of variation between regions and the giving of regional names is something new to the last decade or two in archaeology. And it's not just because individual archaeologists for the Upper Paleolithic want to name a tool tradition after their site. Looking at the pattern of similarities and differences in tool technology between sites and between regions means that we can start to use the little local changes in the making of tools as a way of trying to map out if we have solid lines between regions, 
where, for example, sites on either side of a ridge of mountains have very little in common in the way that they make their tools, while they might have a lot in common with sites in the valleys near them. Or to see if we have a gradual mosaic of little changes between individual sites or individual valleys which add up to significant differences only when you look at sites that are really far away from one another. These sorts of comparisons are what we do in archaeology to try and figure out if groups of people interacted with all of the other groups living near them, or if they only talked to some groups and shared ideas while not spending time with other groups. Did Upper Paleolithic people belong to cliques and ignore outsiders? Or were they happy to be friendly with any of the other groups of humans that they might come across? These are the sorts of studies that will help us tell the answer, eventually. For now, we just have to wait and see. Thank you for listening to the Prehistory Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at prehistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to see any of the new technologies or places that I've talked about today, you can find these on the website at prehistorypodcast.com. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give the podcast a rating and a review on your platform of choice to help others find it. And come back next week when we'll continue to look at life in the Upper Paleolithic. How we lived, what we ate, where we went, and who we might have talked to, and how we expressed ourselves.